0: Top 5 anything just gives me anxiety, to be very honest with you <laughs> yeah. out there. Yeah, That I'm like... <laughs> What's up, listeners and welcome to Fast 5, a Force 5 mini-episode where I'm going to talk about my thoughts on the new Martin Scorsese film, Killers of the Flower Moon. And stick around afterwards, because I have some grievances with the Austin Film Fest screenplay competition. But first, last Monday, the Berghart brothers were on to talk top five single location films. And we knew that there was going to be a ton that we had to leave out. Luckily, the Internet was quick to let us know what we missed. Not in the top five. Did they get it right? Excuse my language. Okay. Hell no. (laughs) I can't believe who who made that list. Who made that? That's blasphemous. Don't look at me. That's blasphemous. Over on the Cinematics Facebook page, we got a bunch of different recommendations starting at the top with Peta Beta from the Middle Class Film Class podcast. He says both my dinner with Andre and 12 angry men. Mitch Burns said mass. So good. I have that one on Blu-ray, but haven't popped it in yet. And and he did say it's heavy. And I know this is going to be a tough watch, but uh, you know, one of these days I'm going to, I'm going to toss that in. Eric Holmes said Kane mutiny court martial. I know he loves that movie. He talked about a bunch on the, uh, the cinematics podcast where he reviewed that he was really high on that one. Phone booth with Colin Farrell. That's a good one. I haven't seen that since it was in theaters. Glorious, Falling Leaves, and The Guilty. I hope he's talking about the uh, Norwegian The Guilty because the American remake, not great. Ryan Smith said Sunshine. Jack Fitzpatrick said Saw, Hush, 10 Cloverfield Lane, which is a real good one, and The Platform. Bruce Perky said Death Trap, yeah, definitely, and Night of the Living Dead, almost. Eric Chavez said Circle from 2015 is really underrated. And Joseph Bridges said Tower from 2016. If you want to get in on the action, the next show is going to be Top 5 Hollywood Pictures Films. So if you have a Hollywood Pictures film that you love that needs to be on our list, let me know at Force5Pod on Twitter, at Force5Podcast everywhere else, or Force5Podcast at gmail.com if you want to email me. And I always put this on both Reddit and on the Cinematics Facebook page. So join the Cinematics Facebook page and just talk movies with some cool people. All right, on to my featured review for Killers of the Flower Moon. Welcome to Osage. Most fellas out here are crooked. Some do things right, most do bad. Don't make small trouble. You're gonna make trouble, make it big. These people, they're very hungry for power. They ain't gonna get it. You think this could cause bloodshed? So? Mm Mm-hmm. Killers of the Flower Moon is Martin Scorsese's passion project, one that he's been trying to adapt from David Grant's nonfiction novel of the same name for close to a decade. He got what I can imagine are his two favorite actors, Robert De Niro, who he's worked with 10 times, and Leonardo DiCaprio, who he's worked with six times, yet never in the same film, and finally made it happen with the help of Apple's film division. Like I mentioned, this is based on a nonfiction book by David Grant about an epidemic of murders in the 1920s in Osage County, Oklahoma. Newspapers then described the increasing number of unsolved murders and deaths among young adults as the reign of terror. Most took place from 1921 to 1926. Some 60 or more wealthy full-blood Osage peoples were reported killed from 1918 to 1931. Newer investigations indicate that other suspicious deaths during this time could have been misreported or covered up murders, including those of individuals who were heirs to future fortunes. Further research has shown that the death toll may have been in the hundreds. Obviously, there's a rich history here filled with gentrification, greed, and black gold. While the basic story seems to be true, there were some liberties taken with the script, but... This is not a documentary, and I'm not here to talk about the historical accuracy of this film. Leonardo DiCaprio plays Ernest Burkhart, a man who has just come back from being a cook in World War I to live with his uncle, an extremely wealthy cattle rancher named King Hale, played by Robert De Niro, and his brother Byron, played by Scott Shepard. Right off the bat, we can see that there's an edge to Hale, as he tells the gullible Ernest that if he's going to get into trouble, get into big trouble, so that it's worth it. Because of a burst appendix in the war, he can't do much in terms of heavy lifting, so he starts driving for Hale for work. One of his fares is Molly Kyle, an osage whose family has a large oil field, and this makes her worth a lot of money. Of course, Hale sees dollar signs like Scrooge McDuck, and he plants the seed of marriage in Ernest's head. The rest of the film plays out very much like a Scorsese gangster picture, with Hale and the Burkharts trying to put the chess pieces in play in order to end up with the rights to the oil fields when all is said and done. And this, of course, leads to lots and lots of murder. I think The Killers of the Flower Moon is an excellent film, perhaps one of Scorsese's top five. It's an extremely captivating tale of the atrocities carried out by invaders to the Osage people. Now I probably don't need to tell many of you that it's top-notch filmmaking because the name Scorsese just kind of implies that, but it's absolutely insane how talented this guy is at 80 years old. The set designs from the 20s and 30s are immaculately crafted, the cinematography is so beautiful, and the bass string heavy score composed by the late nine-time Scorsese collaborator Robbie Robertson just fit. While the film is morose and violent, there are moments of beauty sprinkled throughout. There's one moment where a character dies of natural causes, and the way Scorsese chose to show her heading into the afterlife was super calm and just really beautiful. And then we're smacked straight back into reality. Like most Scorsese films, it's also darkly funny at points. While the few people in my theater didn't seem to get the jokes, I found myself chuckling quite a bit. There's one exchange between a guy and an adoption agent where the man contemplates adopting two kids just to kill them for the insurance money with a straight face. And the thing is, every character is like this. There are no criminal masterminds in this film, just opportunistic monsters who got away with stuff because they've always gotten away with stuff. And as dumb as they all are, they're at least smart enough to tap the shoulder of somebody even dumber than them to actually do the dirty work. There are no tactics to the crimes in this film. Everything is simply an open secret, something that of course ends up biting everyone in the ass when an outsider comes into town sniffing around. The talent on screen is incredible. Now, I didn't know anything going into this film other than DiCaprio was in it, so I was pretty surprised when De Niro was introduced as his uncle. And then about 65% of the way through the film, several other incredible actors show up in very small roles. And while I'm not going to spoil them here if you like to go into movies blind like I do, they are all really great. DiCaprio has always been one of my favorite actors, but he puts on maybe one of his career best performances as Ernest Burkhart, a very simple man who gets in way over his head. He shines in every scene, but the last scene he's on screen is really where he gets to show what he can do, and it's mesmerizing. Playing opposite him is Lily Gladstone, who I was not familiar with, and she is fantastic. She seems stoic compared to Ernest, but she has some really human moments that totally worked for me, starting with her small smirks in the back of the cab ride. The poor woman goes through hell in this film, and there are certain shrieks of trauma that will probably stick with me for a while. And De Niro, wow, uh, somehow still at the top of his game as the sociopath who never does his own dirty work, but somehow keeps everything on the tracks until he just can't. It's crazy to think that he could be this good 55 years into acting. There is not a weak link in the cast, and I haven't even brought up Jesse Plemons, who comes in about halfway in and just knocks it out of the park. The main knock I've seen on this film is that it's long, and it is long. I mean, it's three and a half hours. I debated not seeing this in the theater because that is a big chunk of time. I mean, if you're uh, putting, you know, previews and stuff in there, that's four plus hours. I had to go. I had to go first to support theaters and Scorsese, and second, I, I honestly went so I was not distracted, and I thought it was incredibly worth it. While the film does feel long, I think I checked my watch about two hours in, it certainly never lost my attention. I think it moves at a pretty good pace, and it never felt boring, but I do think that the film could have been edited down to three hours with very little effort. The other main knock on this film is that in the third act, Molly is kind of tossed aside and doesn't have much to say when she comes back during the finale, and I think that was intentional. I think it specifically calls back to something De Niro says in the beginning of the film, and I'm paraphrasing here, it's something about Blackbird talk, but he says they're smart. Even if they're not talking, they're always listening. And that definitely rang true for me in that context. In many ways, this feels like Once Upon a Time in America. It's an extremely well-told gangster film that gives the story the time it deserves, and every piece is top-notch. It's also a film that I will probably not watch again for 20-plus years, but when I do sit back, back down with it, maybe with my son when he finally starts discovering Scorsese at some point when he's of age, I'll go back into this masterpiece with fresh eyes and fall in love with it all over again. I gave Killers of the Flower Moon the very rare five-star rating on Letterboxd, and I would absolutely encourage you to get rid of your distractions and see this in a theater if you can. And if you're a Scorsese fan, this film is a must. Okay, now if you have not been following me on social media, you're probably completely unaware of what's been going on with the Austin Film Fest and the coverage of my latest screenplay, Winter War 84. If you have read this article, then you can probably duck out now. I'm just going to be kind of explaining the things in that article. But if not, uh, this might be new to you. So the Austin Film Fest happens every year. Uh, It's been going on for like 30 years, something like that. And they have all kinds of different things you can enter. You can enter short films, feature films, and one of those things is a screenplay competition. According to the Austin Film Fest website, Austin Film Festival's script competitions stand a league apart. No velvet ropes, no VIP areas. But what they don't advertise is that there may be nobody actually reading your script, or you may be getting feedback spit out from AI generators. And even when there's proof, they don't care. Now, I will admit, in most cases, entering a screenplay competition is a waste of money. There are some good ones, the Nichols Fellowship, for example, but in general, you don't get a whole lot of bang for your buck. Now, the script that I submitted for this, Winter War 84, is a a screenplay that I'm proud of. I had a ton of fun writing it, I had a ton of fun doing a read through on it, but I was not expecting to win the competition. It is a brutal siege film that caters to grimy exploitation action fans. But I wrote something serious. I wrote a more serious drama before this. And so I wanted to write something that was just going to be fun. I think it's a really entertaining ride. Now, the thing about the Austin Film Fest that caught my eye was this part of their terms and conditions. And I'm going to quote this here. "...all readers are required to provide constructive notes for each script. Most importantly, they are also required to read each script in its entirety in order to give the full consideration that each writer deserves." End quote. I've gotten blacklist coverage on scripts before, and the feedback sometimes is not in your favor, trust me. But it's important to see that criticism so that you can improve your work with the hopes to eventually sell something. So I submitted my screenplay to three different categories in the hopes that I would get some feedback that would make my writing better. Cost me about 135 bucks. Now, if you're early and you only submit to one category... That that would cost you $55. And then from there, things go up. I think it's like $85 if you're doing it at the last minute. Unfortunately, I did not get what I paid for, but rather received confirmation that nobody actually read more than nine pages of my script. So the coverage that they sent me, the feedback, starts off with what they believe the plot is. And they say, quote, The return of a long-lost army buddy means a lot to this group of small-town friends. His presence means more to them than he knows, and they spend time together reminiscing about when they used to wrestle as children. As the old saying goes, it's only funny until someone gets hurt. So I read this, and it's instantly fishy, because not only is this not a movie plot at all, it's certainly not the plot of my story. In the first scene of my script, which you can find linked if you go to force5podcast.com and go to blog, it's the first one that comes up. I have the script in there if you want to read it. In the first scene of my script, you'll see that while the army buddy does return from his time in service and the two characters do reminisce about their time wrestling as youths, it's merely the setup to get the characters out of an extremely toxic environment. This group of friends is not a group of friends. It's just the two guys. And then the other the group of people there are just miserable, awful people. Now, next up, we have what they say is the concept, which is even more bizarre. They say as a way to relive their glory days, a group of friends decides to get back in the wrestling ring and show each other what they're made of. It's not an entirely original concept and does not offer any unique perspectives. The women in the story are objectified at every turn. Uh, The first sentence is completely incorrect. While the two friends do like wrestling, they never plan to get back into the ring and show each other what they're made of. My script certainly is not an original concept. I mean, it's a siege movie directly influenced by Assault on Precinct 13 and Green Room, but I do think that it offers some unique perspectives. Of course, you'd need to read the script to know that. Now, the final sentence here is where my blood really started to boil. Not only is objectifying Women, not really a script concept. It's also blatantly false. More on that in a a second because we need to look at the overall feedback that they gave me here. The overall feedback says the outdated language and tone are at the forefront of what might have been an interesting period piece, but it is hard to look past the language used to describe women, little people, or minorities, almost like the writer took advantage of the time period so they could make these insensitive jokes. There's a time and place for that sort of humor, and sometimes it works. In this case, this is open to question. The characters who are male, and not constantly judged based on their sexual prowess, are rather brutish, which is likely the goal of the writer. Wrestling at the capacity they do must take a lot out of them. That's a weird fucking sentence. Unfortunately, the structure feels incomplete, never really knowing where or when the story should continue. The scenes feel strung together without a natural flow. Now, before I address these comments, I gotta explain what the first scene really consists of. So, uh, it starts out in a living room. Well, you don't know it's in a living room yet because we start out kind of like at a wrestling show and you have this character giving a promo and then it zooms out and you see that that it's all on TV and you've got these two characters, Grant and Yancey, and they're watching the TV. And then they're forced into the kitchen with a bunch of very toxic drunks and Yancey's extremely awful girlfriend. It is designed to show what a pushover Yancey is as we see him verbally abused by everybody in the room. These people are constructed as awful people. And looking through the first few pages, one of the big jokes is that Yancey's girlfriend has slept with nearly everybody in the room. There's also an insensitive moment where one of the characters calls the Japanese people Japs, but it's because he's ignorant. That moment is neither glorified by me or celebrated by the characters in the scene. And I was a little confused because there are no moments where little people are referred to in any way in the entire script. When they wrote the sentence almost like the writer took advantage of the time period so they could make these insensitive jokes. That feels particularly odd, considering nothing said really leans on the time period and are conversations you could probably overhear at any bar right now. It felt like the reader read something that they were incredibly offended by, although what that could be is still a mystery to me, and then decided it wasn't for them. And and then that sentence, wrestling at the capacity that they do must take a lot out of them, That's where I was like, uh, maybe they didn't even read this, but ran it through like chat GPT client once they realized it wasn't for them, because that is such a weird sentence and does not add up with anything that even happened in the first nine pages. And then there's that dig on my structure and scene pacing, which you got a discount by this point, knowing that the reader didn't even read the script. There's a couple more feedback pieces. Uh, dialogue, they said the dialogue needs some improving unless the tone is to indicate some sort of locker room talk. The characters are juvenile in action and speech, which does not make for a compelling world. Again, you're not supposed to find those characters compelling. You're supposed to find them repulsive. Structure, it says, it seems as though crucial elements of the story are missing and the actual point of the script is vague. What is the writer getting at in trying to tell the story? The reader isn't sure. Well, you probably should have read the whole script and And then maybe you would have figured it out. And then finally, uh, they have a box for characters. It says the male characters are bro archetypes showing limited maturity and a need for bravado. The female characters are flat, mere punchlines to jokes made by the men about their sexual history or availability. And that characters dig is where I really think things get unfair. To call my female characters flat, mere punchlines to jokes made by the men is insulting. If they had read the rest of the script, there are two characters named Wendy and Ruby who are both strong female characters integral to the plot. Again, had they read this, they would have known that. Now I did reply to the email that I received briskly informing them of my experience. And I received a reply that said, hi Jason, Thank you for reaching out and letting us know about this. Please know that your script was read by more than one specific reader whose notes you received. Our team will take a closer look at the notes that were provided to you and get back to you. I really, really doubt that more than one person read this. I can tell you that the person who wrote this feedback did not read my script. And looking online, it appears that I was not the only one scammed out of receiving meaningful notes on my work. There was a Twitter user that was told their structure was basically the structure of a screenplay that was completely written by AI. Their feedback said, The screenplay structure follows a linear progression with a clear beginning, middle, and end. The writer divides the story into distinct scenes, which sets the pacing for the screenplay and contributes to the overall narrative and character development. Wow, great feedback. There's also a Reddit thread that, similar to mine, outlines how inaccurate the feedback is compared to what's actually in the script. On their characters one, it said characters are well-developed and appropriate for the genre. Detectives could be taken to the next level by adding further unique character development so that they stand out from stories of the same genre. And then they replied there literally is not one detective character in this script. Now, after doing some research, I found out that the Austin Film Festival does not pay readers for their time during the first round, which is a scumbag move in and of itself. When somebody really has little motivation to read hundreds of scripts, it does make it pretty likely that they're gonna try to find a way to cut corners. According to reports, they received close to 15,000 screenplays submitted to the festival. Even if all 15,000 were early birds at $55, and they weren't, and only entered into one category, and they weren't, that would equal $825,000 for the screenplay competition alone. They can afford to pay their readers. Now, after I got that email reply that did not satisfy me, I emailed their screenplay department director, who I later looked up on LinkedIn, and she was a like a customer service person at a company before she became the screenplay department director. So I don't know what her qualifications were to get this position, but I I don't know. So I'm not going to take a dig there. But she says, Hi, Jason, thank you for bringing this to my attention. We are currently reviewing your script and notes and we'll get back to you. So what was this review gonna get me? Um, well, I hoped it would give me back my 135 bucks because that's what I spent on the entry fees. I like I, Like I said before, I don't think my script was going to win and the winners had already been announced anyway, but entering a contest like this means that everything should be judged fairly and fair means actually having your script read. So a few days later, I received this note from the director, Alyssa Alvarado. She said, Hi, Jason. After reviewing your script against the reader's comments, we agree with the reader's overall evaluation of the script. We did, however, flag that's a... Okay. This is... uh, I'm going to read this word for word. It's going to sound dumb because it's written dumb. This is the director of the screenplay competition writing this. Okay. Quote, we did, however, flag that's a statement reflect the reader's bias and did not adhere to our guidelines. The reader comments are complementary with your entry, which you opted to receive. Your fee covers the competition submission. So apparently they agree with the reader's overall evaluation of the script, which is baffling because the reader didn't read the fucking script. The reader comments are complimentary with your entry, which you opted to receive. Your fee covers the competition submission. The Austin Film Festival did not read my script. Therefore, they did not hold up their end of the bargain in this competition submission, and I should get my money back. Many people did receive valuable feedback and coverage from their readers. I am happy for those who got what they paid for, but... The Austin Film Fest needs standards, they need a series of checks and balances, and they need accountability. And I think they need to fucking pay their readers. I do not believe that I was given a fair shot because that would actually require reading the script. Now, if you'd like to see the script... Winter War 84, it is available for anybody to read on force5podcast.com. Just go to the blog, go to this entry about the Austin Film Fest. It's at the bottom of it. It is not about a group of old friends getting back into the ring, but you would know that if you read it. Sorry about that long diatribe. I thank you for listening. Let me know if you like this format or if you want me to go back to how it used to be. The next time you hear my voice, I will be joined by friend of the show, Jackson Boren, and we're going to be talking top five Hollywood Pictures films. I'll talk to you then.